Let's pray. Thank you, O Father, for this morning and for another opportunity to come and sit at your feet to hear your word read and explained. Pray, Father, that you would send your spirit to illuminate our hearts in such a way that will give us the capacity to believe and obey. And Lord, we pray that we would be changed. We would not be merely hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. And though this text is not going to give us any commands, that the implications of what is said here applies to all of us at various times in our lives. I pray that you would give us the courage to do what you call us to do for Jesus' sake and for our own good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began a rather short study on a very brief letter of Paul to a man named Philemon. This epistle of Paul is unlike any of his other writings. And what makes it significantly different is the fact that it is a personal letter. It was intent, the intent of his letter was that it would go to Philemon personally. It was about Philemon personally. And while it was also to be read to the churches, this was a personal letter. He's not writing to correct error in the church. That's unusual for Paul. He's not drawing up drawing us upward toward the glory of Christ. He's not teaching doctrine. He's not uh, teaching us how to do discipleship or every member ministry. He's not commanding us to submit to authority. He's not thwarting the false teachers. No, this letter of Paul is a personal epistle to one of his dear friends. The only place in the New Testament where we find a personal letter like this, outside of Philemon, is in John's third epistle. It, too, is a very personal and very short letter. Now, I don't want to rehearse the whole story of Philemon, uh, the story that kind of comes behind this letter. We've done that a couple of times already. We've, we've spent three weeks uh, on this. This is our... Um, really our third, because at the end of Colossians, he talks about Philemon, and he talks about the brothers who are there. And so I don't want to rehearse all of that, but maybe we should review a little bit. Suffice it to say that Philemon, a faithful and godly man, had a runaway slave who apparently stole something from him while making a bid for freedom. And through a providential encounter in Rome... He became dear friends with the Apostle Paul. This young slave, Onesimus, then repents and believes in Christ. And at some time later, after spending some amount of time in ministry with the Apostle Paul, Paul learns of this young man's sin against his master. And so Paul sends him home to reconcile, to seek forgiveness, and to make restoration. But he doesn't send Onesimus alone. With him, he sends his helper, Tychicus, and this personal letter from Paul in his hand. Now, we've already learned that this epistle is about personal reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. In fact, there are three people directly involved in this tale of reconciliation. 
As I said last time, there is one man who has sinned. There is another man who has been sinned against. And there is a third man helping the other two to reconcile. And that would be the Apostle Paul. Now, if you've ever felt the need to to reconcile with someone you've offended or tried to help two parties who are unreconciled to get reconciled, you know that this can be agonizing. This is difficult. It's difficult to swallow your pride. It's difficult to confess your sin to a person that you have offended, no matter how small your contribution to the problem may be. Nevertheless, confession and forgiveness and reconciliation are clear mandates from the Lord. Let's just take a couple of minutes to think through that. Why should Christian people forgive? Why should they reconcile? Why should they repent? Well, first of all, because we we were created to show the world what God is like. We were created to show the world what God is like. And, and on, on this point, I'm thinking of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where Paul very bluntly says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. And secondly, in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, we read, And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for what class? For the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, this is, this is the blazing center of the gospel. That Jesus poured out his blood so that we could have forgiveness. We exist to show the world what Christ is like and what the gospel is like. That means we confess sin to one another and we ask for that which we don't deserve, namely to be forgiven. Thirdly, we must forgive because we remember how much we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. What's the next word? Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Why should we forgive? Because we remember how much we have been forgiven. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Put on then, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must. Notice the word must forgive. And the third reason, and there are many more, but third reason that I have here is because we are warned of the consequences of not forgiving. 
we are warned of the consequences of not forgiving. Matthew 6, 12 through 16. See if this, these words ring a bell with you. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But, listen carefully, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. Let that sink in. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? I don't know, but it sure sounds scary. I mean, this is bad news for people who don't forgive. In James 2, 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy, judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Matthew 18, 32 through 35, Jesus says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And by the way, if you were to go back and dig into that text in Matthew 18, you would probably see in the footnote that the way Jesus presents this is that this man was in big-time debt. In fact, here's how much he owed. He owed 250,000 years' worth of salary. 250,000 years' worth of daily wages. I mean, Jesus made it very, very intentional here that it would be this big, and no one would be able to pay that back. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, not just with the mouth, from the heart. Let them go. Cancel the debt. Forgive. Well, all of this is true, but it doesn't make the reconciliation much easier. Every time we either confess sin or forgive sin, it always involves sacrifice. We never want to sacrifice anything that is ours, certainly not something that we love. If you are the sinner, your pride will have to be sacrificed. And that's actually the same for the person who's been offended. You know why? Here's my experience over the years, even here at Calvary Bible Church, is that some people, the form of pride is this, oh, I wasn't offended. When everybody who saw it realized they were offended. It's as, as if this, it's going to demonstrate that somehow you're fallible, that you're not God if you admit that you were offended. You're going to have to sacrifice that. 
You're going to have to sacrifice your pride. And if you were sinned against, justice will have to be sacrificed. You're not going to get what you deserve or what you think you deserve. You will actually cancel the debt of that person who genuinely owes you. And you will do it, as Jesus says, from the what? From the heart. Now, as we come to the epistle of Philemon, we need to understand that both Paul and Philemon knew these truths. They knew these truths. They both know how much God has forgiven them. They also know what it means to be what it means to forgive one who has sinned against them. And so I say, we must assume this knowledge because Paul makes no attempt to rehearse any of it. He doesn't explain the biblical teaching on forgiveness. But that's what, that's what Paul's after. He wants there to be forgiveness. He wants there to be contrition. He wants there to be reconciliation. In fact, not only reconciliation back to the way things were, but that they would be better than they ever were. This is what Paul wants. Rather than explaining the doctrine of forgiveness, the entire letter is Paul's appeal to Philemon to do it. Do it. Do what you know. You know what God is calling you to. You know God is calling you to forgive that person. You know God is calling you to ask for forgiveness. Now just do it. Do the hard thing, Philemon. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. But do it anyway. Do it for the glory of Christ. Do it for the health of of the church. Do it for the good of your ministry. Do it for your own spiritual health. Do it as a personal favor to Paul, but by all means, do it. Forgive and reconcile. The church family, I've I got to tell you, I've been in leadership in this church for 26 years, and I can tell you that one of the most grievous and damaging things to friendships and marriages and church plants and homes is a failure to forgive or the presence of an unforgiving spirit. The only thing that is its equal in terms of damage caused is the failure to ask for forgiveness if you are the one who is sinned. Listen, there's a reason we're commanded not to let the sun go down on our anger. And Paul even tells us in Ephesians what that reason is. If you do, you will give the devil a foothold. You will give the enemy opportunity to wreak havoc and cause great harm and destruction in your relationship, in your church, in your marriage, in your family, with your kids. Are there sins that you have failed to confess to to someone you've sinned against? Has someone asked for forgiveness and you said, can I have some time, and you never got back with them? Are you unwilling to forgive from the heart? It's time. Listen to me, all all eyes up here for a second. It is time. I am saying this to you as if it were God speaking to you. God is telling you from his word and through my mouth, it is time for you to forgive. Don't be waiting for some 
opportune moment. Don't wait for lightning to strike. It's already struck. The cross has already happened. Forgive. Seek forgiveness. Now, assuming that both Paul and Philemon understand the Bible's teaching on forgiveness, let's, um, doesn't seem like the right time, but let's do it anyway. Let's stand together and read this text. You needed all of that as background. This is Philemon 9 through 25. Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a little while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So what's the message of Philemon? Well, the message that I want you to hear this morning is this. The fellowship of brotherly love most powerfully glorifies Christ when it reconciles estranged Christians. In verses 1 through 7, Paul emphasized the many godly qualities evident in Philemon's life. But along the way, he hints that something big is coming and and before Philemon gets halfway through the letter, he, he has no idea what Paul is writing to him about. And so he prays, verse 6, that Philemon's active faith will move him to radical love. We spent most of our time on that verse last week. When he sees 
his runaway slave, and reads the letter from Paul. He wants him to respond in radical love and powerful faith. Paul is confident. He says, receive him as you would receive me. Receive him as you would receive me. Paul knows that he's going to respond well. He believes that Philemon is going to respond well. Nevertheless, even with that thought in mind, nevertheless, Paul offers Philemon a veritable avalanche of reasons why he should do what Paul is asking him to do. These, I think, can be neatly categorized as personal reasons to forgive and practical reasons to forgive. So let me look at these. We'll try to take them in order, but we might bounce around just a little bit, so try to follow along. First of all, personal reasons to forgive. Paul appeals to Philemon, first of all, on the grounds of Paul's love for Philemon. I'm asking you to do this because I love you, brother. Whenever someone comes to you and says, I need to say something to you because I love you, you, you start to quake and quiver because you know whatever kind of love that is, it's probably going to be painful. And that's what Paul's doing here. I love you, brother, and I need to say some things. Verses 8 and 9, watch this. Accordingly, though I am bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I take that to be his love for Philemon, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also in Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes when we approach a person about a sin or something that we think may have been sin, we make it harder for that person to repent or to confess their sin than it really ought to be. We come on hard, we come on fast, we come on with accusations rather than questions. If you go in making demands and accusations, even quoting scripture, it can have a hardening effect, an unnecessarily hardening effect. But Paul comes on, Paul, who is fearless in the face of practically any danger, and calls, calls out the, the, the greatest of leaders in Israel. And here's Paul coming on softly and gently and carefully. He could have used his authority as an apostle of Christ to demand it, but no. Out of love for Philemon, out of respect for Philemon, he speaks gently. He shows deference to his brother. He's approaching him not out of law, but out of love. And then in verse 19, Paul says, to say nothing of your owing me your own self, that's a little bit of a jab, right? <laughs> I want this to be your decision, but don't forget I'm the one who led you to Christ. And I think that's exactly what he means here. Paul is the one who brought Philemon into new life in Christ. That often results in a deep, long-lasting friendship. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Secondly, Paul appeals on the grounds of his own hardships. Look at verse, the second half of verse 9. 
I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, I know forgiving Onesimus, although he hasn't mentioned Onesimus yet, forgiving him is going to be a hardship, but that's the experience of the normal Christian life. There are things about living for Jesus that are just hard, and we have to do them anyway. We do hard things. We suffer for Christ's sake. We stick our neck out, understanding it may not be appreciated and we may get it lopped off, figuratively speaking. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. You're going to have to die to some things. Some things that you love, things that you want to hold on to. Paul is old, And 24 hours a day, he's chained to a Roman guard. If Paul can be faithful in those conditions, Philemon can be faithful. In fact, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And beloved, so can you. So can you. And Paul appeals, number three, Paul appeals to Philemon on the grounds of personal attachment to Onesimus. Paul loves Onesimus. This is verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. These are some of the most tender words Paul ever penned in the New Testament. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Nobody saw that coming. Onesimus didn't see that coming. The Apostle Paul didn't see this friendship coming. But here they are. And this is how we know Paul led Onesimus to Christ while under house arrest, this statement. And Paul is saying, as far as I'm concerned, the young man humbly standing before you is my son. Now get the picture here. We're, we're reading this letter. We've read it a hundred times. Philemon's never seen it, right? I mean, it was fresh off the press. It was about to be handed to the recipient for the first time. And for the first nine verses, Philemon has no idea what Paul's talking about. It isn't until verse 10 that he mentions Onesimus. And there's Onesimus standing at his door, hat in hand, with his friend Tychicus to make sure everything goes right, And he hands him this letter. And one of the things he reads is, treat this boy as if he were your best friend's son. Again, verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I don't know what it was about Onesimus that endeared himself to the apostle Paul, but Paul speaks like this about very few people. We should know here, as I said, that verse 10 is the first mention of Onesimus. Paul writes nearly half of his letter without mentioning to Philemon the object of his concern. Everything previous to verse 10 is designed to soften Philemon's heart toward this difficult request that he's about to make. That's a good lesson for us. Go in gently, go in easily, easy. 
Be kind, be tenderhearted, be concerned about them. Get your heart ready to repent as well because you may have contributed to the problem. Here's Paul being gentle in this difficult request. Paul's about to lay a very big thing on Philemon and Paul's determined to do it with an abundance of grace. And number four, Paul appears, appeals on the grounds of Philemon's own goodness. Look at verse 14. But I prefer to, not do, to, to do nothing without your con- consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Philemon, I want this to be your decision. And I, I poked around at you a little bit there about me reminding you who led you to Christ. And I really want it to be your decision. No pressure. No manipulation. In verses 3 through 7, these are a testament to Philemon's goodness. You remember last week we spent all that time reading what Paul said about Philemon and, and what a quality man he was. Uh, no doubt a, a leader in that community. And, and the church of Colossae met at his house. So for the first seven verses, they're, they're really a testament of Philemon's goodness. And Paul wanted this decision to be made by the right person and with the right motive. And then number five, Paul appeals on the grounds of their friendship. <clears throat> Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, your friend, receive him as you would receive me. I want you to think about this as if it, if it were not my, not my son standing at the door, but me, that I'm the one who sinned against you. How would you treat me, Philemon, if I was the one who ran away and stole whatever Onesimus stole? How would you treat me? Would you be harsh? Would you throw me in the dungeon? Would you give me the death penalty that I deserve? No. So consider me, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. In other words, treat him as if the one coming to confess sin were actually me. When someone approaches you for forgiveness, beloved, will you treat him or her as if their friendship really matters to you? I've heard over the years so many people say, look, I just don't need that person. I just, I just don't need them. I'm done with them. It's just easier. Just cut them off. It's over. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to do the hard thing. We're just done. Are you willing to trash that relationship and have nothing to do with the offending party? These are Paul's personal reasons for asking Philemon to forgive and reconcile. But then there's a second category, not just personal reasons, but practical reasons why Philemon should forgive. So Paul appeals, number one, on the grounds of his newfound usefulness. Now this is really interesting. If you haven't been interested so far, this is a, this is a little bit interesting. Look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This is obviously a play on words, right? He was useless, but now he's useful. 
And, and this becomes more interesting because Onesimus' name means useful. He was useless to you, but now he's, he's really living up to his name. He's useful. This runaway slave was Mr. Useless, but now he's Mr. Use, useful. In Christ, he is useful to you and to me. And actually, this may be the only place in the New Testament where the same play on words is just as evident in the Greek as it is in the English. In Greek, useless is akristos, and useful is euchristos. It's a phonetic play on words in both languages. And that's not really anything earth-shattering, but it, it sure is fun to observe. The point is, now that Onesimus is a lover of Christ and is back home where he belongs, Philemon receives him back as Paul suggests, he will be very useful in life and in ministry to you, Philemon, if you will receive him home. The most significant point to be made here, however, is that Onesimus is not the man he once was. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes a man. And if the gospel hasn't changed you, then maybe you have not truly believed the gospel. Because as we've said around here a thousand times, when the Holy Spirit comes into a sinful man, one of them is going to change. And it's not the Holy Spirit. You will change. The gospel changes you. The Holy Spirit changes you. And he changed Onesimus. He is not the young man he used to be. The gospel has changed him. And by the way, I read last week that historically in decades that followed these events, there was an aged brother who was known as the bishop or the elder of Ephesus. And can you guess his name? Onesimus. Now, we don't know for sure whether this was the same Onesimus or whether it were someone else. But it wouldn't it be just like the Lord, our God, to raise this runaway slave, bring him home with the Apostle Paul's letter for all the, the nations of the world to read in all time, to see him reconciled to his master and then elevated to the position of key eldership in the city of Ephesus? That just sounds like the Lord. Number two, Paul appeals on the grounds of proven gospel faithfulness. Verse 13, Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. I take this to mean that Onesimus became a faithful co-laborer with Paul in gospel ministry. I mean, think about this. Here is Onesimus. He's now a friend of Paul. He's now a new believer. Paul is teaching him the word of God. Paul's in jail. Onesimus is out of jail. There was all kinds of things Onesimus could have done for Paul and for the sake of the gospel. And apparently he did them faithfully. We don't know how much time he spent there with Paul in Rome, but it must have been a significant period of time. I suspect it was shocking. It was such a long period of time. It was shocking 
to Philemon when Onesimus showed up at his door. But he spent a significant amount of time with him, so much so that Paul grew in affection for him. He saw his giftedness. He realized his calling. And he loved this brother. And he put him to work. And it seems like everything he gave this young guy, he did. God raised him up. What an asset a man like that would be to the ministry of the church that met in Philemon's home. Paul returns to the theme of usefulness to Philemon when he speculates that, according to, look at verse 15. Here's Paul speculating. He says this, This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Paul sees the invisible hand of providence working through all these affairs for the good of Philemon. And isn't that a wonderful thought? I mean, what difficulties are you facing today? You realize God has carefully measured that for you? He's carefully measured that for you? We know that from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. Your, your temptation is not random and sovereign. It is carefully measured. God only allows you to be tempted so much. For those who love God, he causes all things to work together for good. Discovering that one of my slaves has run away, that's bad. And the Lord's just saying, no, 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 no. It's, it is bad. It was sinful. But wait do you see what I have planned. Where do you see what I have planned? Number three, Paul appeals on the grounds of full restoration. Really, finally, when you're not going to lose anything, look at verses 18 and 19. Paul promises, if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay. Uh, so I, I, I take it that the Apostle Paul looked at his scribe, whoever, whether it was Tertius or someone else, and he says, hand me the pen. I want Philemon to see. This is me. Mostly blind Paul at this point, which is his point. Look, I am writing this with my own hand. You can tell that this is my own hand because of how large my letters are. If he has defrauded anyone, I will pay it. Paul understood that true repentance requires restitution if necessary. If, if you defraud anyone, it must be paid back and restored. And, it, and it's not likely that Onesimus would have had the pocket money to pay back whatever he owed. It's probably how he found Paul in Rome. He, they, he was probably broke and starving when someone said, hey, let me introduce you to someone. The Apostle Paul, no less. For Paul, it was a small price to pay to see these brothers restored. Paul was willing to make the sacrifice. There have been times in counseling when I've thought to myself, this couple, been working with them for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and I think, you know, the only person who's working on this relationship is me. 
That happens all the time. And here's Paul who's saying, it's okay, I'm, I'm willing to pay the price. I, 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 think, I think they're going to obey the word. I think both of them will obey the word. I know both of their character. I'm willing to pay the price. And so he says, verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. And, and what's the benefit? I want to see you two reconciled. And then he says, refresh my heart in Christ. For Paul to see these two brothers, I mean, nothing would be more fresh, refreshing to his soul than to see them not only be friends now, but brothers Verse 20 says that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Finally, Paul concludes verses 21 through 25 by saying, confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul was confident he would be let out of jail soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a precious, precious letter in the Bible, isn't it? When you start digging into this, you know, every, everyone I've listened to and everyone I've read uh, faces the same struggle. What do we do with this little book? Well, we do what I just did with you here. We just say what's there, and we apply it best we can. But I want to suggest to you that there's more here than what I've said. This little letter is precious from the Lord, and it gives us one more thing. When you look carefully at this letter from a bird's eye view, you're looking down on it as a whole. You can see a very clear picture of the gospel. Consider this. Onesimus was born in slavery. Moreover, he became a transgressor when he took what didn't belong to him and he tried to hide the penalty for thieving runaway was death. But his transgression, by his transgression, he incurred a debt that he could never repay. But Paul stepped in between Onesimus and his master to appease the righteous indignation and pay off the debt. And the result was Onesimus was transformed from being a slave to being a precious son fully reconciled to his master. The picture is clear, isn't it? We were all born in slavery to sin. And sin became personal when we took what God forbade and then we tried to hide our sin behind the foolish fig leaves of self-righteousness. The wages of sin is death. We owed God a debt that we could never repay. But Jesus stepped between sinful you and the righteous wrath of God. He is the only mediator between God and man, our only hope of salvation. 
And on the cross, he paid our debt and satisfied the demands of God's holy law and wrath against sin. And those who repent and believe in Jesus are transformed from slaves to sin to sons and daughters of God. Beloved, if God did all of that to forgive you, if he did all of that to forgive me, don't you think we should forgive and reconcile with one another? It won't be easy. It will be awkward. Do it anyway. For the glory of God, for the good of the church, for your own well-being, this will be good for you. The fellowship of brotherly love most powerfully glorifies Christ when it reconciles estranged Christians to one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you today for this book and this message. Pray, Father, that you would so move in our hearts that we would have a desire to examine them and to see if there's any need to ask for forgiveness and give us the courage to do it. And oh, Father, I pray that you would restore relationships, relationships that are broken that I know nothing about. But Father, I pray that you would do it for your own great glory and for the joy of your people and for the good of the church. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.